Warning, MF Uncensored contains adult language and discussion. Listener discretion is advised. We're a couple of misfits. We're a couple of misfits. What's the matter with misfits? That's where we fit in. We're not that being dilly. Don't go around with Hello, everyone, and welcome back to MF Uncensored. Don't forget, if you guys are listening to us on the go, you can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, basically anywhere you get your podcast. You can also find us on our website, themisfitfaction.com. There you'll find links to not only this show, but also our other shows like the Multiverse Fancast, Cinematic Adventures, and you can also find links to our reviews, our articles, and our brand new Misfit Faction store, which has an awesome new hoodie designed by Ronnie on there now. So make sure you guys check that out. Again, that's the themisfitfaction.com. I'm one of your hosts, Paul, and I'm doing the intro for you guys today. We have an awesome episode planned for you. Ronnie and I got to sit down with an author by the name of Eli Shaw, who wrote a book, If I Die Before I Wake, and Eli was awesome. He was like the nicest guy you could ever meet. He was born in 1948 and he is one of the most selfless and caring people that I've ever had a chance to talk to and I've spoken to a lot of people who do a lot of good. So I hope you guys really enjoy it. His uh, book, If I Die Before I Wake, is just a real testament to the kind of person he is and basically he is the most charitable person with he created a camp for kids with special needs and really during a time where people didn't understand things like Down syndrome or being on the spectrum. He was a real pioneer in doing things for that kind of uh, mentality. So I really hope you guys enjoy it. Before we get started, I just want to remind you guys about a couple of things. Number one, if you guys are looking to start your own podcast, maybe you guys have been listening to us for the past couple of months, or you guys have always wanted to and you're not sure exactly how to get started or how to get it going, if you guys go to podbean.com slash misfitfaction, you'll get a month of podcasting free on us. That is a thank you from us to our loyal listeners. And also, if you guys are looking to start your own show, reach out to us. We are always looking for brand new content to add to the uh, network, and we're looking for brand new shows all the time. So make sure you guys let us know that you're interested in something like that, and we'll help you get started. Or maybe you have your own business or your own online service. Guys, podcasts are everywhere. There are literally millions of them. If you guys are looking to get your product out to the masses and you want to do a little bit of advertising, if you guys go to sponsorship.podbean.com slash misfitfaction, you'll get $100 worth of free advertising on us. That is a Again, a gift from us to you guys. So reach out to us also and let us know that you're interested and we will help you get started. And I cannot start an episode without talking about Raise Energy. Guys, we've been having Raise Energy here at the studio for months now. It is one of our go-to energy drinks. It is one of our go-to afternoon slump killers. And if you guys are looking to try it out on your own, you can go to repsports, that's R-E-P-P, sports.com and enter the code MISFIT89 at checkout to get a discount on us. Again, that's Rep Sports and Raise Energy Misfit 89. And without further ado, on with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to MF Uncensored. If you guys are listening to us on the go, you can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, basically anywhere you get your podcasts. Or you can find us on our website, themisfitfaction.com. There you'll find links to not only our show, but our other shows like the Multiverse Fancast and Cinematic Adventures. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Paul. With me in the studio today is Ronnie. Ronnie, how are you today? I'm doing well, sir. How about you? I can't complain. I got Ronnie in the studio. Yeah, right? What a day. <laughs> but uh, we also have somebody uh, via the Zoom studio, as it's been <laughs> been. So rightfully named, I guess. We have with us author and professional caregiver, Mr. Bob Kershaw, also known as Mr. Eli Shaw. Eli, how are you? 
I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's our pleasure. Like yes. we we got a chance to chat with you a little bit beforehand, and we think that this episode is going to be uh, it's going to be an important one. It's uh, we're tackling a topic that is something that people don't think about very often, and yeah. a lot of people see as some sort of burden for other people. But talking to you about this particular topic, you were very passionate and just doing our research on you and reading a lot about you. You have been a very active person and basically helping people for your entire life. So Eli, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, at the age of 73, I've been on a, a one hell of a journey, I have to say. I started out in, as a caregiver, but I I didn't really know I was a caregiver most of the time until the, the 90s. And then I started to realize, my God, everything I do is about caregiving. Mm-hmm. And but it started out when I was about 10 years old. My one of my neighbors moved in and moved into the neighborhood. Uh, and uh, their son, whose name is Charlie, came over to the front of my house. So we had a little uh, walkway that went out to the uh, the hedges. And I would I used to sit out there and watch the cars go by and stuff like that. And uh, he came over and he stood in front of me and I couldn't see him very well because the sun was in my eyes and, but he threw the ball to me and I threw it back to him and he smiled and ran away. <laughs> and, you know, I thought that was kind of weird, you know? Yeah. And then, uh, you know, then he, he came back another day and I saw him and he came by and did the same thing and whatnot. And then one day he came over and, and he threw the ball to me and I held on to the ball and he kept on throwing, he kept on saying, you know, throw back, throw back. And uh, so anyway, I, I threw it back and eventually we started to be, be friends and we, you know, played around together and whatnot. I had a huge yard to play in. So he was kind of thrilled to have that because he could run and ramp and whatever. And um, I, I told my mother one day, I said, mom, I got a, uh, I got a Chinese uh, friend. And uh, I said, I have a friend from China. And, and so she said, well, invite him over sometime. So I did. And we had dinner and then he left. My mother asked me to help her with the dishes, which meant I was either in trouble or I, I had a lecture coming or something. And uh, so anyway, she was talking to me about Charlie and I, and she said, well, Charlie isn't really Chinese, you know? And I said, well, if he's not Chinese, what is he? And she got, she said, well, he's got a thing called mongoloidism, which is Down syndrome. That's what we used to call it. And uh, so I was curious I, at 10 years old, I, you know, I figured out the word. And of course, in those days, we didn't have uh, Google. We had the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. And so I looked it up and uh, looked up the name in, in the uh, encyclopedia. And the word came from the country of Mongolia. So, of course, at that point, I thought, well, it's close to China. And I thought, well, I got a Mongolian friend. So I told everybody I had a Mongolian friend now. <laughs> and um, so I didn't really understand that he had an ailment or, you know, a condition. And so we became friends. And then I started to notice all the kids used to bully him and, you know, uh, make fun of him and, and like, you know, chase him around. But Charlie would always think of it as a, as a game. So he would like laugh all the time, even if he got pushed down. And I, I really couldn't understand that. And, and it really bothered me. So I used to kind of like jump in and if the bullies were coming to get him, then I would jump in and, and say, Charlie run. And he would waddle away, you know? So anyway, and of course I ended up getting beat up more than he did. So, but eventually we, we became pretty close friends. And I asked him one uh, year if he was going to go to camp, cause I was going to go to camp that summer. And he said, look, you know, I, I don't go to camp because they don't take people like me, which 
I didn't understand that either. So I went to camp. When I came back, he had moved away. His father was in the military and they got deployed. So I was really upset and I thought it was my pro- my fault. And I talked to my mother about it. And apparently somewhere along the line, I told my mother that I wanted to change the way people treated kids like Charlie because I didn't think it was fair. And of course, I didn't remember saying that to her. And in that was, let's see, I was about 10 years old. So that was about 1958. In 1969, it took me about three years to create it, but I created a camp for kids with disabilities when I was 19 years old. Wow. The the camp was called Camp Happiness, which is spelled wrong because I can't spell for crap. <laughs> and of course, having ADD, it took me about two years, I guess, to really get the camp going. And I was already working with a in a group called Senior Teens Against Retardation, which is what we called it then. Now it's called, I think, Senior Teens Aid Rec- Recreation. And it's all about teenagers going out and taking kids with disabilities out for, you know, games or movies or dances or whatever, you know. And so it was, it was one of those uh, things where I uh, was working with the kids and I heard the same answer to my question, are you going to go to camp? And they said, we don't, they don't take people like me. And so I really got kind of upset about it. So I decided I'm going to create a camp. And I was just talking about this to somebody the other day who went to the camp. He's one of my good friends. And he said, what was it like trying to create the camp? And I said, it was literally, when I look at it now, it was literally hell because nobody would trust teenagers to create a camp for kids with disabilities. And we, I got together with, we had 30 teenagers, 60 kids with disabilities, and we actually created a camp. And it was only, there were only two adults involved in it who were asked to be just advisors and not supervisors. So we created that camp. And the year afterwards, I got, I ended up getting uh, several awards. And one of them was a, it was called a Youth of the Year Award. And then I got the Parents Magazine Award and a couple of other ones. And my mother was asked to present the award to me. And in her talk before the, she gave me the award, she said, About 10 years ago, Bob turned around to me and said he was going to change the way people uh, treated kids like people you're taking care of. And now that I see what he did, I see that he already he has he has made that change. And it was it was like, you know, I did. That's, you know, at that point, I was like, I said that, you know. (laughs) And, And so anyway, she gave me the award. And from then on, it was like I started working with all kinds of different programs. And I I think doing the camp really built me, built my confidence up to say that I can do pretty much anything, you know. Yeah, of course, now, nowadays, you couldn't do that. If you're a teenager, and you tried to create a camp for kids with disabilities, and it was only teenagers doing it, you would have been shut down because Mm, you know all the requirements you have to have you have to know all of the cpr you have to know all about medications you have to it's it's there are so many rules and regulations and state whatever teenagers really couldn't be able wouldn't be able to do that in nowadays which is a shame because it was such a learning experience for all of us we had 30 teenagers and it's at some point we had 50 uh, teenagers working together raising the money and in 2019 we had our 50th reunion so, but it was the confidence that I got from, and, and I think, you know, I guess my ego had a lot to do with it too, because, <laughs> you know, it was like, wow, you know, I got an award from this and, and everybody, you know, accepted it and everybody accepted me and they, they, you know, they liked what I did, you know, 
So I, you know, I went out and, and I ended up going to Brazil with the uh, 4-H. I got one of the highest awards. In, oh, wow. In, yeah, one and 4-H. I went for a year to Brazil. And I'm still now on Facebook. I'm still talking to some of the kids that I worked with in, in Brazil. Yeah, I started a, a group called the Mini, Cl- Mini Agricultural Club of Uraí. And the teenagers there, what we would call teenagers, their youth, I guess, went from about 16 or 17 to 22. And so you, if you had a youth group, most of the time there were kids from the age of 16 or 17 to 22, if you had a youth group. And there were no young kids in, in the agricultural groups and whatnot. So I started a young uh, group. And the older group turned out to be the foster uh, parents, if you want to call it that, of the, the younger group. They would uh, kind of take them on one-on-one and, and help them out and started a whole new thing. And all the families, all of the people that I worked with in Brazil were Japanese. Mm-hmm. This is just a whole nother story. Yeah. Um, that's, and, that's really incredible. Like just to hear that, like the, it seems like you've created a really nice culture too of giving back and, you know, people helping people, you know, Ronnie and I both work with kids, him a little bit more than I do, but that's how he and I met. And I do private lessons for kids with autism. Ronnie works with kids of all different walks of life. So it's awesome to hear somebody so passionate about this, this topic, this subject. Now, do you think now we're in 2022, do you think that you know, the culture has changed where people are a lot more accepting of people with disabilities? I, I think yes, only only for the reason that in the 1970s or, or late 60s, I worked with the, oh, sorry. Anyway, in the 1960s and 70s, I worked in the institutions. I used to call them human warehouses. Mm-hmm. And, um, the You could walk into one of the buildings and there would be a day room, which is which was completely uh, tiled. And there would be a drain in the middle and you just, you know, to clean it, you would just take the hose and wash everything down, you know, and there would be people who were running around naked, no clothes or, or just, you know, just banging their heads or whatever. I mean, it was just, to me, it was just a, you know, a horror show for me. And I, I, the, one of the can't, one of the programs that, or buildings that I worked in were younger people. And I tried to teach them how to play uh, basketball. I mean, football rather. And while we were in the uh, day room and one day I, d- I thought, well, why can't I take them outside now? So I opened up the gate to the, the yard and we went out into the field and we started playing football out there, but I couldn't do it anywhere else because if I went any further than that, the administration would see me. So I was doing it kind of like undercover. And one day two of the kids ran, ran out too far to get the ball and the administration saw it. And uh, they kind of took me in and they gave me a suspension for, for doing it. And they asked me why I did it. And I said, well, to me, we're treating these people like animals mm-hmm. and they're, they're caged in. Basically, you have uh, a day room and then you have a caged in area outside where they play around. It's all fenced in and you got some of them actually had chain link fence on the top of it. So it was almost like, you know, with a monkey cage or whatever you want to call it. It was, to me, it was just horrifying. And I tried to make it as, as much better as I could, you know, just by being there. And so anyway, I got suspended when I came back, uh, I said, so am I fired or what? And he said, no, but we're going to give you a raise and we're going to, we're going to see if we can open up a, a group 
and try to do a study of what we can do to to expand the activity of the people that are in the in the institution and we created like a trail in the woods where the the, the residents were actually digging holes and, and filling in and whatnot and making trails in the woods so that they could go walking in the woods safely and um so then right after that that was sort of the end of the institutional age and right after that we had i call it the mass exodus where they were letting all of these people out of the institutions trying to figure out ways to get them into the community. And because most of the people were in, who were in there were in there because the community wasn't, their condition wasn't acceptable to the eyes of the community. They were afraid of them. They were, it was uncomfortable walking by them or whatever. And so they would make suggestions to the families. Well, why don't you put them in, this, in an institution and they'll, they'll be well taken care of and then it'll be less stress on you. And so eventually they came back out into the community, into uh, group homes, and some of the families would take them in or the families, their own families would take them back in. And that was a big ex exodus. And right around that time we had that that, that started was uh, Rose Kennedy was very, very prominent in getting people to understand what mental retardation was or, you know, mental illness or whatever. I, I, I don't like using that word, but in those days, that's what it was called. So right, that's, yeah. But anyway, they, she was very prominent in, in the community all over the country, actually, to getting people out into the community because of her daughter, who was, who had, I can't remember what she had, but she had a mental illness. Right. And so all of a sudden I started watching this and I started working in some of the group homes. I learned all about how, how, how can we go into the community and get the community to accept them again? And that was a big, big step for, for society. And, but nowadays, when you, if I look back at that and then I see what they're doing today, I've got neighbors right now who in those days would be in an institution. And I have two or three houses down from me. There's a, there's a couple who have Down syndrome and they're, they're married. And that would be totally impossible in the, you know, in the 60s and 50s or even earlier than that. And now I can see where we, we have job opportunities for these people. A lot of times we have to have someone with, I do uh, job coaching for some of the people in the community now. Three days a week, I have five, yeah, about five clients now that, I go into, let's say, Walmart, and the the person I'm working with, he has some connection to the to the real world, but he has you might want to call it a, a TV uh, television talk in his head, and all of a sudden he'll he'll come out and goes, "I am Igor, and I will you know take over the world," you know, and you know, some people are really offended or or scared of that. And it's my job to get him to the point where he can, I, I'll say, I'll say, okay, why don't you, you know, let's lower your voice a little bit because, you know, everybody has their own space and you don't want to, you know, into, you know, whatever. And, and he would agree with me. And then, you know, and then we go out and get all the carts from the, from the parking lot, bring them in and that's his job. So it's right now they he, people like him are actually in the community working with us. Walmart is a big, big employer of people with disabilities. If you walk into any Walmart, you're going to meet somebody who has a disability. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And I, and I think that's amazing. So I think 
To answer that question, I think we've come leaps and bounds. I think we have a lot of other issues to to handle because we're in we're in a culture now that there are a lot of things that you know if someone is a certain way or looks a certain way or whatever culturally or even lifestyle wise, we can't accept it. We've come a long way with people with disabilities because we 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 feel sorry for them. Maybe I don't know, but and and I think a lot of people have more people. I think have had an experience with someone with a disability now than ever before. Absolutely. Yeah. So just really quick, you have, you also wrote a book about all this stuff. It's called If I Die Before I Wake. Can you tell us a little bit about your book and how that started and, you know, give us some bullet points from it? Sure. In um, the nineties, I was a caregiver um, for three people, my father, my best friend and my neighbor, my best friend had AIDS. My, my father had a heart, heart problem and he ended up in surgery and went into a coma. And then my next door neighbor, I was her husband's caregiver. And then she, I took care of her. She had a stroke. They all died within a uh, short period of time. And at, uh, when the last one passed away, I felt like I hit a brick wall. Luckily, I had a friend who was a psychiatrist. He, I, always, I always told him that uh, he used to pick my brain like it was sushi or something. You know, he... he we would go out and whatnot. And, and that one night he says, come on, let's go out and get drunk. So we did. And of course I, you know, I was plastered and I kind of spilled my guts about, you know, how I felt. And I, I felt, felt like I hit a brick wall and I don't know what's next. And I feel like I'm lost. I don't know what to do the whole nine yards. So he says, why don't you write everything down, write all your feelings down and put them in a notebook and just every day, write something, write something on how you feel, where it comes from. Maybe it comes from your past. Maybe it's, you know, something that happened recently or whatever and just keep writing. it. So I did. And then about uh, six months later, we went out to, uh, to eat and I gave him the, the book and he read it. And a few weeks later, he called me up and he said, you need to write a book. And so I, of course, I've never thought of writing a book at all at that point. And that was in 1992. So 25 years later, I ended up finishing a book. So it's taken about 25 years to write it. Mostly because it's been a real roller coaster ride since then. And of course, we had the, the pandemic, we had the AIDS crisis in the 90s and 80s, and whatnot, which continued even later on. And of course, I worked with people with cancer and whatnot. And I, every day I started to see different things. And because I knew I was writing a book, I was more aware and more conscious of all the different things. And then right around that time, I started to realize that, damn. I've been a caregiver all my life, no matter what I did. And it started to give me the, the, the idea that everybody innately is a caregiver. We take care of our houses, our dogs, our cats, our you know, pets, whatever. And we take care of our kids. We take care of our car. You guys take care of your podcast. You take care of each other while you're doing the podcast. It's, you know, it's, it's innately, it's, it's in our system with, this is who we are. And it probably goes back to the, you know, the first humans and, you know, when I, when I started looking at that, I started to realize that, you know, we are all caregivers in one way or another. And basically, if you look at the foundation or the basics of caregiving, and it goes for anything, you have to have compassion, you have to have, you know, perseverance, and you have to have, be, be conscious of everything that you do. Just for an example, I worked with a kid with cerebral palsy for 27 years. I met him when he was about nine, and he just passed away a couple of years ago. And during COVID, he didn't have COVID, but he was so lonesome that he just gave up, I think. And that's my interpretation of it. But what I found was that, you know, I have to be conscious of everything. If I walked in his room 
to to get him out of bed and put him in the wheelchair. And I walked in and I say, oh, Nate, I, I had the worst day today. He doesn't give a damn about my day. You know, he's sitting there and looking at me like, you want to have a bad day? You lay here and look at this damn ceiling all day long and see how you feel, you know. And what I realized was that for me to be taking care of someone else, I can't put my my luggage on his, you know, on his plate. And if I do that, I'm going to lose, you know, and I won't be able to, to work as a caregiver. And maybe later on, you know, there, there might be some openings where we could talk about my day or whatever. But initially, you know, I got to get in there, get him, you know, perked up. And I would, you know, eventually I would walk in and say, hey, Nate, how you doing? Having a good day? Let's go. Come on, we're going to do some good stuff today. And he got all excited and ready to go. And, I, and it changed every single um, you know, bone in his body and, and made him more excited about doing stuff to, that day. And I, I do the same thing with all of my clients. And, but also what I, and, and, and that's basically just being conscious of where you are or not. But I also realized that there is, and, and this happened to me because I was taking care of three people for many years and I was not being paid for it. And I started to look around and on any given day, there are at least 50 million people in the United States who are taking care of somebody who are not getting paid for it. They're taking care of their spouse, their kids, or their mother, their, you know, their father, their siblings. And and then they're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because they love them. And the unfortunate thing is they're the invisible population. And what I'm trying to get across to people through the book, especially just from writing my experiences of what I did to get people to realize, wow, I mean, you, you, you seemed amazed when you, when you read my story and the fact that, you know, I've done all this stuff. Well, you know, that's what I'm trying to get people to do is to become amazed at the fact that there are people out there and there's millions of them um, out there and they're probably your next door neighbor, either probably in your church or your, your, your job or your school or whatever, they're taking care of somebody. And what I'm trying to get people to understand is that, you know, even though people may not ask for help, you know, they, it's one of the most exhausting and daunting experiences anybody can go through is to take care of, of a loved one, because you got the emotion, you have the, the amount of work that's, that's needed, you have to take care of them, sometimes you have to bathe them and change them and, and, you know, feed them, depending on the situation, they may have a feed, you know, feeding tube, or you can feed them by mouth. And it's, it's a 24 seven experience. And most people don't get it. They, they, they just think, oh, you're taking care of somebody. Oh, that's nice. And we have so many out there and we're not appreciating that population very well. And I, I think, you know, I've been trying to talk to congressmen and, and people in the government and whatnot to see if we can come up with a program that's, that's I mean, we, you know, people who are taking care of their family, their mother and father, they can't even apply for any money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's, there's only maybe three or four programs and they're very meager, but there's only three or four programs and it depends on where you live and, and the, the dynamics of, of the programs and the, the, people you're taking care of that actually supply money for a person to take care of their, their loved one. And a lot of times I, I've seen situations where someone was adopted and because they were adopted, they were allowed to work through an agency 
to take care of their loved ones. And but yet if if it was their son or their daughter, they wouldn't be able to get work through the agency because it's not allowed. <clears throat> so there's all these different hurdles and whatnot. And we're not really paying much attention to these people. And I think everybody that I've talked to, and, and I don't think there's very few that have said that they've never been a caregiver. But everybody that I've talked to about the book and explained to them about the book, they've all said, well, yeah, I remember taking care of my mother or my my father or my sister or whatever. Yeah, oh, God, you know, and they have all these stories that they want to tell me now. And I hear so much about what, you know, the experiences that I went through. And I try to turn it around for them and say, isn't that, isn't that, isn't that great, though? I mean, you actually spent that much time with your your loved ones and a lot of them say yeah my my siblings wouldn't even come down to help you know whatever and that's that's that happens an awful lot because if one of your siblings goes down to help oh i guess i don't have to do that now and because it's it's really daunting and uh, it's a real good cop-out but the book itself is is basically my journey i i have a uh, son who he, he basically adopted me. His mother was HIV positive and she was one of my clients. And I started a program with her called Legacy because as she was dying, like everybody was, anybody who had HIV in the 80s or 90s were basically on a death sentence. And so my, my, she would talk about, well, I, if I die, I don't want people to just remember me as a number or a statistic or Oh, that was Pam. Yeah, she was the drug drug addict that died of age. Yeah, she didn't want that. She wanted to leave a legacy, and she didn't know how. So, I created a, created a program for her and a lot of other people there called Legacy. And the first question is, if you were to die today, how would you be remembered? And the second question is, and you kind of the first question you kind of like go into your soul or ask other people. You know, if I die today, would you know what would you say about me at, at my funeral or whatever? And the second question is, if I die today. How would you like to be remembered? And then you really go into your soul and you look look into yourself and you try to figure out what what are some of the things deep down inside of me that I want to expose to the public or to my family that I want them to remember about me. And you really kind of you know work on that quite a bit. And the last question is knowing the answers to both of those questions. What is it you need to do or not do, include or exclude in your life? And what are some of the tools that you can use to create the legacy you want to leave? The book was my legacy. That's that was the tool that I used to leave the legacy for my family because that's basically well, my my family really didn't know who I was. Mm-hmm. And my after my sister read the book, she said, "I've known my my brother for almost seventy years, and I really didn't know who he. I knew he. I knew he was my brother, and I knew he did this and that and the other, but I didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. And now I do. And that was you know that was really important to me because it made me realize that my my writing the book was uh, a success in that way where it really exposed myself to my family and gave them an opportunity to see who I really was. It's a, the book is called, If I Die Before I Wake, A Caregiver's Journey. Oh, and, and about my son, uh, the Pam, who's, who was a woman who, who died of AIDS, she asked me on her deathbed uh, if I would, you know, keep an eye on her son. And I said, yeah, sure. And whenever she was in uh, rehab or whatever, he used to stay with me. And so finally, one day he came up to me and says, I want you to be my dad. And so he tells everybody he adopted me. <laughs> That's fine. That was when he was nine. And now he's uh, 38. I have two grandchildren and I'm just so proud of him. You know, he's, he's come a long way. He was an African-American kid 
you know, and, and a lot of times I show people, you know, and they say, oh, this is my son. And some people will come up and say, did you know he's black? <laughs> yeah. He is? Oh, I'll, what? I'll, I'll say, no, I didn't know that. Oh, my God. You know? um, Nobody ever told me. Yeah, right. <laughs> but that's basically it's it's all those different things that the little things you know taking taking care of my son who wasn't my son you know in, in the initially and learning how i i went kicking and screaming i didn't want to have kids i was single happy and and i could do anything i wanted and now i have a son you know it's like it, it, what it did was it taught me how to be a caregiver for my son and it taught him how to be a caregiver for me because he didn't have a dad mm-hmm. so it's a two-way street and and most people if you're in a caregiving situation, that's what happens. It's a, you know, give and take. But uh, the book is basically about these little things that over the years, and I'm 73, past 63 years, I guess, that I've, I've experienced. And I think I was conscious enough. And of course, I had ADD and ADHD. And I think I had a little bit of autism going on there too. But I think with all of that, I was conscious enough to really be conscious of who I was, where I was, and how I affected the things around me. And if I saw something that wasn't uh, satisfactory to me, or it bothered me that it was being that way, I took it upon myself to go and make a change. There's a saying that says, be the change you want to see in the world. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've had that on my door forever. And also the, uh, the saying, la desirata, I can't think of it. I think it's called that. Anyway, it's, it's a poem that I, I've had on my, my door for Oh, since I was about, I guess I, since I was in college, cause it really made sense to me. And it's, it's all about being conscious and being aware that you're not the only one in the room. You know, mm-hmm. it's, there are, you know, we live in a community and if we don't take care of our community or if we don't take care of each other, it's not going to work. Right. Um, yeah. That's and I think that's so powerful now, especially because of look what's happening in the Ukraine. I have the, my friend who's, who lives in the Ukraine is my web tech guy. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, we we were very close for a long, long time. He lived in the United States and he learned about my legacy thing because his son was living in the Ukraine. And uh, he he said, I I don't know what I'm going to leave. I'm trying to leave a legacy for my son, but it's hard because he lives over there and I can't, I can't be with him. And I said, well, you're you're a web web guy or you're a tech guy. You have one of the best and most amazing tools in the world to create the legacy you want to leave. And I said, why don't you do like a video of you talking to him? You know, like he's you know a few years older or whatever. And I do the same thing with my grandson. I he's only three, but I'm talking to him like he's twenty. <laughs> when he's twenty, I may not know he's twenty, and I may not know I'm tw- <laughs> I'm yeah. there. You know, so for me to leave a legacy now is really important for me. Yeah. So, but it's, you know, the book book basically has all of that, and also it has stories of other people who have died of AIDS because of a program that I did in I think it was ninety ninety four I think, and I was I was a photographer, so I took pictures of the people who were HIV positive, and then I let them write their own story, and I I did an exhibit that actually went around the country, went to quite a few colleges, and it eventually was at the uh, cathedral of saint john the divine for about six months and what it was was just a picture and then their story and i used to go to the cathedral just to you know stand there like a tourist and watch people you know read them and see their reactions and it's just amazing 
you know, people would look at, you know, talk to each other and say, God, I never realized it was so difficult or, or they would come out crying thing, you know, saying, you know, I just, you know, I didn't know, you know, and because these people were talking about their personal feelings, you know, and something that doesn't get out a lot. So, but, and that the, the name of the program, the name, the name of the exhibit was if I die before I wake. And that's, that's the, 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 the title comes from my friend who had AIDS and every night uh, before he went to bed or when, after he went to bed, he, he would look at me and he'd say, listen, if I die before I wake, make sure my checkbook is balanced. My, the dishes are washed. I don't want anybody coming in here and seeing a dirty house. So make sure it's clean, you know? <laughs> and he was saying that to me every night. And I, I thought, you know, I thought of the prayer, but I, but I also thought it was weird that he would say, listen, if I die before I wake tomorrow, you know, and, and that's where the, the, the name of the book comes from. That's incredible. So, and where can people find that? I have a website. It's uh, called Author Eli Shaw, A-U-T-H-O-R-E-L-I-S-H-A-W.com. And you can see the story or whatever on there. And also you can get it on Amazon and I can give you my, my email because a lot of people have been e- emailing me and because they wanted a, a signed copy. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so it's it's B K E R S H A W five six zero seven at gmail.com. And basically what people have been doing is they've been, you know, asking if the, if I could send them a book and then they send me the money, I send them the book and I sign it for them or whatever. Oh, and um, you know, that helps out. Yeah, so. absolutely. My my wife actually runs a book page on Instagram, so I'm yes. sure she's gonna be the first one going, there, there's a book? Yep. Can I buy the book? <laughs> <laughs> I like her. I like oh, her. Yeah. She, she'll, she'll ask me, I'm going to, can I buy that book? And I'm like, you already bought it. Didn't you? She's like, yep. Just letting you know. Bye. She'll, Hello. She'll, yeah. She'll probably have an order out before the end of the week, but uh, we're running a, a little low on time. Ronnie, anything you want to throw out? Any questions? I, I have one question for you. One quick question out of all the accomplishments that you've had and everything that you've created, you know, in your entire life, what has been your greatest accomplishment that you've had? I can say two, my son and the camp for kids with disabilities when I was 19. Mm-hmm. I think those are the two the two points in my life that the camp, especially because, like I said before, it was kind of an ego trip in some ways, but it also made me realize that in, in 1969, when teenagers weren't supposed to be able to do stuff like that I did it mm-hmm. and uh, you know and I had the support of all these teenagers which took an awful long time to get them to you know get them behind me and because they were looking at it like really do you think we can do this you know and they they went gangbusters and it's been it's been a hell of a ride on on the way <laughs> That's also, like I said my son he taught me so much about race well well a lot about racism and uh, systemic racism and you know which I, i've seen personally so wow that that was incredible eli thank you so much for for sitting down with us and chatting with us today it was a, such an such an interesting and great perspective on things that a lot of people don't ever even think about yeah yeah it's it's been my life <laughs> <laughs> well i hope you don't mind us saying we would love to have you uh, back on again after we uh, get a copy of your book and and uh, dive into it if that's all right with you 
absolutely absolutely i i i've been trying to get this this you know just the word out to especially about the the whole idea of caregivers and the fact that we are all caregivers Mm -hmm. and we we should respect it you know Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, look for look for another uh, message from me on Facebook <laughs> pretty soon. <laughs> I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if my wife didn't already order the book and we haven't before we yeah. even did the interview, knowing her. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, chatting with us today, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, tell her to email me, and I'll send her a uh, signed copy. You All got right. it. It would be our pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Man, what a what a cool guy though. Like yeah. he, like there's just something so inspiring about somebody who basically gave his life to helping other people. Yeah, very, you know, selfless, you know, person right there, you know, just doing everything for everyone else. You know, it kind of seems like he wasn't doing it. You know, he did talk about like oh, the ego boost with the camp and everything, but you know, just listening to him, it's, he's not doing it for the recognition. He was doing it out of the goodness of his heart, you know, and putting people's needs and, you know, family, friends, people he doesn't even know before his. Yeah, it's it's inspiring. You know, Ronnie yes. and I both have worked with kids with special needs. I do it privately one-on-one. He does it in group settings. Like, it is, it's something that people don't realize can really, it's, it's so um, inspiring. Yes. And it's so beneficial, but it is also work and it is it difficult is. and to all you guys out there if any of you guys are caregivers professionally or or even just you know because of circumstance family members stuff mm-hmm. like that we tip our hats to you guys you guys are heroes yes but uh, that's gonna wrap us up for today as always don't forget to check out our website themisfitfaction.com you can find us on facebook mf uncensored or you can find our facebook group the misfit fashion media network just at just request us we'll we'll let you in we promise we, will. we promise we'll do it <laughs> uh, a lot of people see private group but really the private group is just to uh keep out the bots yes when you put podcasts on facebook you get the bots all the bots all the bots but that's gonna wrap us up for today as always i'm paul i'm ronnie and we'll be back next time